All right, I invite you to turn in your scriptures this morning uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. Um, let me just warn you that things are going to pick up around here. About this point in the book, uh, always when I teach it or preach it, uh, the engagement level goes higher, uh, questions start coming, and so on. I've had the opportunity or privilege of teaching through 1 Corinthians uh, 30 to 40 times in Bible college. Uh, as I look back on those days, I think I was a little bit insane. It was a little insane, uh, but I rejoice in how that uh, trained me. I survived it somehow. I, I remember when I first went to, to Northland to teach uh, Bible, my second semester, I was supposed to teach 17 hours a week of Bible, New Testament Bible classes. And it, it held that way for quite a long time until they realized that that's far too much to ask one person to do. You know. But that's what we were all doing. That's what we were all doing at that time back in those days. And as I look back on that, I do rejoice in the opportunities I had to proclaim the Scriptures often. Can you imagine spending 17 hours a week with an open Bible, working through the Scriptures with people? It was just a real delight and blessing. Well, as I had the privilege of working through 1 Corinthians, you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and the hands would start raising. The questions would start uh, coming. People would begin to pay very close attention. And so as we get to this point in the book, it is uh, that we get to another problem, the problem of immorality in the church of Corinth. And uh, as we come to uh, these verses... Uh, I need to uh, give you just a, a bit of, 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 a, of another disclaimer, and that is that the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a challenging, challenging passage. It's an extremely important text for the health of any local assembly, and for that reason, I will unapologetically proclaim it from the pulpit. But you'll just have to know that there's a lot of teaching that will go on this morning. So I want to exhort or encourage you this morning to pay close attention as we work through the text. And if you've got questions, uh, our pastoral staff would love to interact with you about those things. Matter of fact, if there are enough questions uh, that we get, we're thinking about doing some sort of Q&A in the future, but, but we'll see how that goes. Okay. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you take notes, uh, there is a, a very uh, extensive handout in the bulletin. You can pull that out and take notes that way. It might be of a help today in our service. So we come to 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. We come to three problems. The title of the sermon is Problems, Problems, Problems. That's a, a good picture of what was going on in the church at Corinth. Remember, Paul is writing the letter to correct problems and to answer questions in the church. In chapter 5, the problems that draw his attention are the problems of immorality in chapter 5 that is addressed, where a man was having an ongoing relationship, immoral relationship, with his stepmother. So Paul confronts immorality there, but then he also confronts arrogance or pride in the assembly in chapter 5. That leads him to a third confrontation of greed in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, where some of the Corinthians were insisting on their own things, their own rights, in law courts in Corinth. And then at the end of chapter 6, he's going to return to a discussion of immorality again. Hence the title, Problems, Problems, Problems. This church is 
full of problems. So get into chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. The way I like to look at God's judgment on immorality is to ask three questions of the text. I think the, the text answers three questions for us. And along the way, as I answer these questions in this text, I'm going to occasionally draw in another important text or other important text that I think will give us a full-orbed picture of something that we would call church discipline. And so as we work through these texts, I'll try to make it clear when I'm in this text or in another. The first question Paul answers is in chapter 5 and verse 1, and if you're taking notes, the question is, what sin or sins demand church discipline? Look down in your Bible at chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Here we'll look first at this text itself. You may ask yourself, what sort of sins demand that a church would discipline or remove an erring believer? And if the Corinthians asked that question, he would say something like this. You should look in the mirror. You should look in the mirror. Because there was a sin in their assembly, as they would consider their own appearance. There was a sin in their own assembly that demanded discipline. And he describes it here in many ways. He uses a Greek word, uh, the Greek word porneia that could be translated fornication or immorality. This is a word that Paul doesn't use very frequently in the New Testament. He only uses the, word, the term six times in the New Testament. It's interesting to me that of his six occurrences of the word immorality found in the New Testament, five of them are in chapters 5 and 6. So this is a problem that he's going to deal with specifically in Corinth. But, but notice as well in verse 1 how he describes this immorality. He says the, the nature of the immorality is such that this sort of immorality is, is not even tolerated by the pagans or the Gentile culture around them. Now we didn't take a lot of time at the beginning of our, uh, our series on 1 Corinthians to paint the cultural background of the city of Corinth. Let me just su suggest that this city was infamous for its immorality and idolatry. One scholar said that Corinth was like combining the modern cities of New York, Los Angeles, and Los, or San Francisco, and Las Vegas. To be considered a Corinthian uh, was, was, was not in some ways, was, was not a compliment. It was a very immoral city. And so Paul says that you've got a problem in your church in that you've got ongoing immorality that even your culture, who's familiar with immorality, condemns. Then we look down in our Bible again in verse 1, and, and he describes it even, even further, that a man would have his father's wife. 
Here Paul uses a precise phrase, father's wife, when he could have said mother, I think to indicate that this is not the man's physical mother. It's probably his stepmother. But regardless, the point is, there was a man in the Corinthian assembly, a believer in the church of Corinth, who was having an ongoing immoral relationship with his stepmother. Now, we don't know what was up with the father. We don't know if he was dead or if there's a divorce here or simply. uh, It may be that the father was just being wronged. Okay, but but Paul Paul calls it right out here. And and the word that he uses, that he's having his father's wife, is indicating that this is not just a one-time failure. This is an ongoing issue with this man. And so regardless of the specific case here, God considers this sort of sin, this practice, a sin. You could write down a few Old Testament texts in the law that would condemn this sort of practice. For instance, Deuteronomy 27 and verse 20 calls this sort of sin, ongoing physical immorality with a, with a close relative as a curse. It draws a curse upon you. This is in the middle of the chapter, the middle of 12 curses. The sixth curse is placed upon this sort of thing. As a matter of fact, you could also write down in the Old Testament in Leviticus 18, verses 8 and 29, if if a man had his father's wife, it would bring the death penalty. If you're an Old Testament Israelite, I mean, God saw this as an egregious thing in the Old Testament scriptures. And so as we're looking at this text, we ask this first question. What sin or sins demand church discipline? Paul answers that question by by having the Corinthians look in the mirror and see this sin that's in their own assembly. Have you ever looked in the mirror before at the end of a day and noticed an ugly blot on your face. That's never happened to you, of course. Maybe other people in the room. Perhaps you came to church, you, en- you enjoyed the day, you even got to talk to the senior pastor. It's a great opportunity, you, you enjoyed fellowship with him. Then, then it was just this, this wonderful day. I mean, you felt very social. It might not even been your personality, but you felt very social. So you're just going around, you're engaging all the people. I talked to all these members, I got to work with them, but then you go home and you look in the mirror and you notice this ugly blot on your face. How do you feel about that good day that you had? Oh no, you know, how long has this been there? Corinthians had an ugly blot that they needed to take care of. And something that affected more than just the individual himself, it affected the entire church. This was a problem with the whole community. They must deal with it. Now, there are other important texts that talk about church discipline. So I'm transitioning now on this first point to some other important texts that I want you to write out and study this week. Okay? There, in, in my opinion, as I've looked through the New Testament, there are at least five other, or, or, I'm sorry, five important texts, four other ones, but five important texts that identify the sorts of things that churches should be responsible to discipline someone for. Let me 
give those to you. First, the first one is an easy one. In 1 Corinthians 5 here, it's for ongoing immorality. That's the one we've been looking at in verse 1. But if you look a little bit farther down in your Bible, uh, at verse 11, you'll see a list of sins in 1 Corinthians 5.11. So 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with Kind of feels like church discipline in a sense. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of, here it is, sexual immorality, we've seen that one, or greed, or is an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. You got this? So there is a list of sins in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11 for which if someone partakes in an ongoing fashion, the church of God must, must discipline. We're not even to eat with some of them. Now I'm not going to solve what that means for us today. That'll be like next week, right? You'll need to come back next week to hear that. But just write down for the list of sins here in chapter 5 and verse 11. And by the way, that list is expanded. There's six words given in that list. There are four more added to it in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Uh, Paul says in that text, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality, that's actually a translation of two words, could also have effeminate there. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so you've got this list of nine or ten sins here that call for the church to exercise discipline if someone is not repentant. Well, let me write down a few other references or have you write down a few other references for you. You could write down 1 Timothy 1 and verse 20. If you've got a bulletin handout, you'll see it right in there. But 1 Timothy 1 and verse 20 gives this reason. If someone who is a so-called believer in our assembly renounces the faith or blasphemes the name of Christ, they are to be removed. Renouncing the faith. Add to that the fourth one in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15, a, a big text about church discipline there. Do you realize that that text says if, if a brother or sister is walking disorderly, they are to be removed? In particular, though, what that text describes disorderly as, or walking disorderly, is that you, you had a believer, some believers who were, were lazy and being busybodies into the affair of other people. See, they should have been working, supporting themselves. Now they're living off of the kindness of the assembly and they're intruding into the affairs of other people in the process. They're walking disorderly. That is a reason to remove someone from the assembly if necessary. You could read that text. Look it up this week. The fifth text is Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Romans 16, 17 and 18 and there we see that, uh, that we need to remove someone who insists on major doctrinal deviation. Major doctrinal deviation. Okay? So is this overwhelming at all yet? I hope it is. It, yeah. 
For me personally, this study has been an overwhelming pursuit. But as I look at my New Testament Bible, it is for those reasons we need to possibly discipline someone. So what we have so far is we have this like list of sins. You with me? That could You might not understand what they all are. You can study that this week. Okay? Got these like list of sins that might call for a church to remove someone from the assembly. But the question becomes, what do we do with that list? Okay? And this will probably be the most challenging part of our conversation this morning, but I really would encourage you to pay close attention. What do we do with these lists then? And this is where good Christian people disagree a bit. Okay, I, I worked through this with the pastors this week. We took a lot of time on this, and I think we're all in agreement. Now, they might hear me today and say, you know, I changed my mind, uh, depending on how it goes. But good people disagree on this. And, and really what happens here is most Christians, you come to a why in the trail where you have to make a choice. Okay, and you could write down the two possibilities here, at least as I see it. The, the question is, what sort of sins demand that we do the final phases of removal from a church? And good Christian people come to two conclusions. Some people say it is for any ongoing, unrepentant sin that we will discipline someone within the assembly. Okay, so you got this. So any sin that a believer commits that is ongoing and unrepentant, some people believe might be a legitimate reason for discipline. You with me? And this is heavy teaching. I warned you, right? I warned you. Pay close attention, please. Okay, so any sin. Whereas other people will say, no, I will not discipline for any sin, but any sin found in the list of sins in the New Testament. I mean, we just took time. I just gave you the five like, key texts and all the reasons given there. So the question is, what do you do with the list once you have the list? Okay, and so some will say, any ongoing unrepentant sin, that's the way to go down one side, or any ongoing unrepentant sin found among the list of sins in the New Testament. You, you with me? Nod your head one way or another. Okay, okay. Some of you are awake. Okay, and I've seen people do it in different ways. Do we discipline for any ongoing unrepentant sin or any ongoing sin found in the list? What about sins like continual thought life failures? Would we as a church remove someone from the assembly who's had years of failure and, and or lack of true repentance when it comes to internal sins like failures of their mind? What about pride? Would we remove someone from this assembly who is proud and who when confronted about it in a multitude of different ways doesn't see the issue and or doesn't agree with the verdict? Well, perhaps there's a mediating position possible here. And let me just give you what I think is perhaps the best thing here. I think that we need to remember that those, those lists, those epistles that, where Paul writes those lists are occasional letters. 
Paul is writing to specific churches to help them work through specific sins with real-life sinners in their assembly. And so, to me, it seems like the best way to answer this question, what sins demand discipline, would be to say that the list of sins give the categories or types of sins for which New Testament churches should remove ongoing unrepentant sinners. In other words, for me, once I got that list, my own study of the New Testament, I'd say, what is common about these things? List out all these sins, and what I believe is best is these sins represent egregious, atrocious sins that have the most potential to damage the testimony of Christ in the assembly or in in the world. And so uh, among those lists, you will not see ongoing drug abuse, right? Do you see that in any of the lists? No, no ongoing drug abuse, right? The the New Testament, but, but the New Testament, I think, does anticipate that when it says drunkenness, Ongoing, unrepentant drunkenness is a sin that would demand for us to remove a person. And so using that sin as a category, as a guide, uh, I believe it would be necessary for us to remove a, a believer, a professing believer who is involved in ongoing failures when it comes to drug abuse. This is the New Testament assembly. What, the way I'd be prepared to lead you is that we, can, we will confront any sin. We'll confront any sin, but discipline for sins that have the greatest threat to destroy Christ's testimony in the assembly. It's very interesting to me in, 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 in my Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there are two sins that Paul deals with. What are they? Immorality, and then look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. And verse 6, your boasting is not good. There are two issues he will deal with in chapter 5. One is ongoing immorality, and what he's going to tell the church to do is to remove the offender. The other one is a group of people who are arrogant or proud about that sort of sin, and Paul does not discipline all of those from the assembly. But he confronts them very strongly, saying things like, you're your rejoicing is not good. Are you not rather to mourn this person be removed from among you? Regardless, the commitment of our pastoral staff is to lead our church to discipline those who are guilty of these types of ongoing, unrepentant sin. That leads us to a second question. You made it through the hard part, okay? Sort of. So, uh, second question. What procedures should we follow in this? Verses 2, middle of verse 2, through verse 5, I think Paul discusses a procedure that he wants them to use in Corinth. Now, I told you we're going to go to some other texts occasionally into this text. So first, I want to start in another text. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18. Would you do that for me, Matthew 18? This is a critical text for us to consider this morning on uh, what procedures should New Testament churches follow if they ever find themselves in a place where they need to 
confront and or discipline someone within the assembly. Matthew 18 and verse 15 uh, gives us a wonderful approach to confrontation. Look in your Bible at verse 15. Paul says, if your brother sins against you, or I'm sorry, this is Matthew speaking, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I back up again. This is Matthew writing, Jesus speaking. Continue, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Here from the very mouth of Christ, we have some universal principles about confrontation that I believe are very helpful and or uh, beneficial to a church to use as a process or a procedure for going about church discipline. And so I, I know you've heard preaching and teaching on this text before, but what does Jesus say we should do if someone has offended us in some way or another? He says you first start where? One-on-one. You go personally, personally or privately with them. I remember hearing Dr. Olala speak on this years ago, and he had three Ps, right, that would kind of help you through this text. I, to that, I'll add a fourth one in a moment, okay? But you start personally or privately. So if you are aware of anyone committing an ongoing sin like we just talked about in any of those lists, the way we should start the process is you should go privately to them one-on-one. You don't necessarily run and go tell a pastor or a deacon or anyone like that. You have a responsibility as a member of the body to go to that person and to confront them personally and privately. And if the person repents, what happens? I mean, what happens? If they repent, we forgive, right? We forgive and we shut down the process of, of confrontation. We rejoice. Why? Because we're all sinners, We all have the potential to engage in any one of these sins in an ongoing fashion. And so if this person repents, we rejoice, we we praise the Lord together, we pray together, we're thankful, okay? But if they don't repent, if there's no repentance after that personal or private confrontation, what do you do next? Look at Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Next, you go plurally, right? That's what Doc O said. Plurally, you take two or three other people with you. Now you're involving a few other people in the assembly, maybe a pastor, maybe some deacons to go with you and to confront the person regarding their ongoing unrepentant sin. And what happens if they repent? Same answer I just gave you. Rejoice, celebration, it's like a party, right? We pray together, we thank God together. But what happens if they don't repent at that point? Then Jesus says the next thing to do is you go, the third phase, the third phase of discipline would, you, would be you go publicly. When the whole church is gathered, you tell it to the whole church, he says in this text, the whole assembly in this passage. And so then what happens at that point? So say we come to the whole assembly here at Colonial Baptist Church and we confront a sinner, a believer, regarding his sinfulness and he repents. What happens? Party. Rejoicing. Celebration. Why? 
It's one of our main goals. That's why we need each other, to strengthen each other in our walk with God. Rejoice in the repentance and the forgiveness and the picture that is of the fact that Jesus' blood, Jesus' blood can cover any sin. What happens if he doesn't repent at that point? We take a few more weeks, a few more months, and we pray and we, we, we reach out and we appeal to the person to repent, but if they're still not repentant and they insist on their sin, then the fourth P I would add to this from uh, Matthew 18 is uh, dependent on the King James Version. Okay, King James says, if, if all these other things don't work, you treat them as a publican. Okay, now I think the reason the translation did not prolong is none of us know what a publican is. Okay, but it's translated by others as like a tax gatherer as, or as an outsider. You remove him from the assembly. You, you no longer treat him as a believer. He has rejected us. He, he or she has rejected us at every opportunity, in every way we reach out to them. How can we any longer claim or believe that they are a believer and or a, a genuine member of Colonial Baptist Church? And so this is a procedure that Jesus lays out for us, and I think Paul has a similar procedure in mind in, in texts like Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 that says, after a first and second admonition, reject false teachers. But now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Would you do that for a second? So now, now we're back to this text. Okay? This is a bit different, right? It's teaching. It's not easy, but it's important. Got questions? Write them down. Talk to us. I'd love to help answer any questions you might have about this text. Notice Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 2 through verse 5. Verse 2, and you are arrogant, are you not rather to mourn? But, but then look at the second half of the verse. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Here, Paul is not to content to deal with the immoral man in such a gentle and deliberate fashion as is laid out by Christ. I mean, if you look in your Bible in verse 3, he says, I've already pronounced judgment on this immoral man that's involved in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And he, he basically then gives them a strategy of how to handle it. And it involves going right to the final phase of, of discipline that was just described below, uh, um, in Matthew 18. Now, one of the questions I ask in your notes right after this is, why would Paul do that? I mean, why does he jump right to the end? And I think uh, one possible explanation is he's an apostle. Okay, um, He's an apostle issuing an apostolic pronouncement. Uh, and it may be that he's just uh, horrified that a sin like this would be allowed to continue and that, that they would be boasting in it. And so he says, remove. Or it may be, and, and this is something that from time to time we will do as an assembly as well, is there are times when a sin is extreme, it's already public. 
Everyone already knows about it. And so you jump to phases that are more public in confrontation. Anyway, I mean, it is evident, right, in 1 Corinthians that this church knew about this sin. And they not only knew about it, they were boasting in it. And so Paul jumps right to the end here. But notice what Paul calls for here. He calls for public action. Verse 4 is extremely important in your Bible. Verse 4 is extremely important. He says, uh, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That little phrase, when you are assembled, is important because Paul is calling the church to remove the unrepentant sinner in a public church gathering. This is one of the most important texts that would prove or demonstrate that. Okay, because when you involve yourselves in church discipline, it's not an easy process. We don't like it, right? It's messy. Who, who would want to do it? And then who would want to, to corporately or publicly remove someone for an offense? I mean, none of us would be especially comfortable with that. Well, this is a command of the Apostle Paul. See, it's, we don't have a choice. This is a command. And as a New Testament church, we need to have the moral courage to follow through in a public gathering, if necessary, like this, if we want to be following the Scriptures of God. And so he says, when you are gathered together in the name of the Lord, you're to exclude this one from the church. I remember hearing a story of a good friend of mine who's a pastor, and they had confronted a woman many times about ongoing immorality in her life. Committing adultery. She was running out and abandoning her husband. And it got through the personal level, the private level, the plural level. It got to the, the place where the pastors felt like it was now necessary to bring this offense before the whole assembly. And so the pastor of the church went to the lady with a few other people with him there, and he says, listen, sister, and in, in just this coming week, just so you know, I'm going to have to take your name before the assembly and let them know what's going on. And then I'm, I'm going to give them some time to reach out to you and so on. And that's when uh, this lady recoiled at my friend. And she said this. She said, if you ever do that, I will never step foot in your church again. How do you think my friend responded? I think God gave him wisdom. He says, sister, we don't want to do this. All we want is your repentance. If you would repent at any moment, if you repent now, we'll shut it down. We'll work with you. We'll pray with you because God would have you be faithful and loyal to your husband. You cannot continue in the sin. He says, but if you don't repent, I'm commanded in the scriptures. See, one of the reasons that question is difficult for us is because there's like two conflict, con conflicting purposes at that moment for us in discipline. One is, we've got to do it to obey God. And another one is, we do it and we want to see the person restored. And what I want to suggest is, even when it doesn't appear likely that the person will ever be restored, we still have to do it. Why? Why? Because Paul says, when you're gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
deliver the person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That leads us into a discussion of how. And unfortunately, I, I hate to end at this point. But he leads us into discussion of how or for what purposes we would get involved in this process, and we'll pick it up there. Let me close this morning, though, by saying this is a difficult teaching. Tough text of Scripture. And if you think it's hard to understand, it's even harder in many ways to practice. Throughout the next several verses, Paul will give two reasons for the church to get involved in the process. One is for the hopeful restoration of the erring believer. We want to see this person repent. If you, if you do have a handout, you'll notice in the top left corner of the first page, it says, pursue love. That's the theme of 1 Corinthians. You say, well, this doesn't sound like love today, Pastor. When there are texts in the New Testament, I think of Hebrews 12, uh, comes immediately to my mind that, that tells me that discipline, even corporate church discipline, it is a form of love. One of the reasons why we would get involved in this messy process is we're not, not going to be content to let the person just go off without us saying or doing anything. We want them to turn back to the Lord. And then I'd encourage you to read this week the second purpose or reason is found in verses 6 through 8. It's found in an analogy that I'll explain next week. It talks about the need to remove leaven, something like yeast, from a batch of dough. And the point that Paul is making is because of the work of Jesus, the church is like a batch of dough without any leaven in it. But if you allow this sin, this, this unrepentant sin to continue to fester, it will begin to contaminate the whole thing. And so we also must remove this person for the corporate purity of the assembly. I encourage you to look at that this week and to pray to God that he would give us grace and the courage to practice these sort of things. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to this text of Scripture, there is so much here. Lord, but we're thankful for the words of the Apostle Paul. We're thankful that you give us guidance, that you give us direction, that you demonstrate here love that is willing to confront. Lord, may we understand more of this. As I prayed in the opening scripture, after I read the opening scripture, may we be a church who loves well, that reaches out. Dear Father, it would be so easy in a medium to large-sized church to just let people fall off, to just remove their names from the books, to pretend like we didn't see or hear anything. But Lord, may that never be true of us. May we love them enough to get involved in their lives and appeal to them. 
Go see them. Go talk to them. Go encourage them to repent of their sin. And Lord, may we be a church who's willing to obey you as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.